You're listening to The Sports Buff, the official podcast of Imperial Sports Business Club. Hello, welcome everybody to another episode of The Sports Buff. I am your co-host, Daniel, and I'm joined by Henry. How are you doing? Yeah, good, thanks. All good. So today we have another uh, very special guest. I'm sure he's going to give us a lot of very good insight into the sports industry, an industry in which he has a decade plus of experience. For the past five years, he's been the head of sports at Barndor, which is part of JMW Solicitors. And he started his career a decade ago as a sports agent. So we're joined by Ben Pepe. Ben, thank you very much for being here with us. Pleasure. Nice to see you guys. Yeah. So, um, Ben, I kind of wanted to take you back to the like the kind of very, very early stages of career obviously Daniel mentioned that you kind of worked as a worked as an agent for a bit but I remember like kind of reading your profile and on the on the first bit it said that you started as an intern at IMG and you know what struck me about that company is that it's quite like a, a wide company that offers a lot of things did you kind of know what you wanted to go into at the start or were you kind of just still making your mind up as kind of most young people do as well at that age so I very much was in the was in the latter um thought process aligned to knowing that I wanted to work in the sports industry at that time in my life when I was at university I I didn't know anywhere near as much as obviously what I know now about the sports industry and and the and how wide and deep it actually is and how many different verticals there are within within one specific industry and as you alluded to IMG was a brilliant place to actually for the first time I think in my career from a professional perspective realize what the multiple strands to the sports industry actually were but also what work was involved in those things so I obviously knew from growing up um, the various different elements that that feed into the sports world right so whether it's clubs leagues events governing bodies whether it's broadcasters whether it's sponsors and partners um, but I didn't know the inner workings of the environment and and what what went into each of those things. And the great thing about IMG is as probably the world's leading sports marketing group and rights holder and, and kind of sports agency as such that, as you say, did, did and still does so much. They do talent management, they do sponsorship and commercial, they do production, they do broadcast media rights, they do consultancy and advisory. Um, so it's a really good opportunity to... Um, spend eight weeks in a company that whilst I obviously didn't work across all of those service areas I got an insight into in into the various inner workings of of the industry albeit from an agency standpoint and what was obviously a, a very reputable agency so it was a really really good chance to do that and um, and start to not just align obviously what my passion was um, and but also start to focus on that career trajectory as to how once I left university, once I'd kind of finished doing the internships, I was actually going to kind of make and get a break into the sports world. Yeah, I mean, I suppose, you know, when you, when you kind of read on a person's profile, you see the word agent, you kind of, you know, think of your big profiles in the game, like Mino Raiola and all that kind of stuff. Um, but no one, I don't think really many people know, like, what the kind of process is to enter into being an agent, you know, what's the... Uh, would you mind just telling us kind of what what the actual process is like applying for it, going through the process of doing it, what kind of badges you might need and things like that? Sure. So it's very timely, actually, because it's now changed back to what is changing currently back to 
where it was when I first started, actually. So when I first broke into the agency world, um, and I'll answer the other part of the question shortly with regards to kind of how to break in. But when I first started in the football agency world, the industry was regulated, it was licensed. So what you used to, you didn't have to do this, but if you um, if you did an exam, you would become a like what, what was then known as a licensed agent. So the, so the process essentially was you'd be working in a football agency, and at that time, the the FA had an exam that you had to do that was stipulated by FIFA. And I remember back then, this was in 2013, there was only 7% of people that actually passed that agent's exam. Um, and essentially, you would you would kind of sit the exam process, you'd go to Wembley, you'd take an exam. So it wasn't like being in a, in a student hall or, or anything like that. Um, and it wasn't a prerequisite that you had to be a licensed agent in order to act as a football agent. But what it meant was that, one, you could sign off on your own deals. Um, and at that time, there was essentially two two lines of, of agency work as such from a representation standpoint. There was the, the licensed agents who could, as I said, represent their own players. They could sign contracts. They could sign off on deals because they were licensed, albeit you were regulated in what you were doing. So work with minors and all that kind of stuff. And there was the agents that were still operating as essentially intermediaries and agents that didn't pass the exam or didn't do the exam. And what they would do is they would either work for a company that um, would have licensed agents who could sign off on their deals, which was fine. Or at the time, you could registered solicitors basically could become registered football agents and again, sign off on deals. So a non-licensed agent would do all the work, get to the point of transaction, and then bring in a lawyer who was a registered agent to essentially sign off on the deal. Um, 2015 came along, FIFA deregulated the whole industry, as you guys probably know. What then happened was all you had to do was pay £500, do a CRB check, and away you went as an intermediary. So for the last um, seven or eight years, that that is essentially has been the process. So anyone could have become an agent, literally, I mean, as I said, the, the regulations have changed, but speaking hypothetically a year ago, if you tomorrow decided that you wanted to become a football agent, you would basically apply, pay your £500, do your CRB check, and as long as you didn't have a criminal record, away you went as an intermediary. So what then started to happen was you had in registered intermediaries that were no longer just purely sports agency professionals, but they were players' brothers, cousins, girlfriends, dads, and a whole load of other people that were suddenly becoming players' agents. Um, and what that then obviously did was it opened out the market to this kind of the Wild West that you obviously hear about now with regards to the agency world. And um, I think when I first started, there was something like 300 licensed agents to 3,000 professional footballers in the UK. There is now, gosh, probably thousands of agents um, pre-regulation but still the same amount of professional footballers. So you can imagine, obviously, how how things changed uh, with regards to market saturation and everything else. With regards to you, the first question and breaking into the industry, um, sport in general, and I'm sure we'll kind of touch on this, but sport in general is obviously a very insular industry. And even though it's big business, there's a huge amount of money involved in it. it it's, I kind of, I suppose, compare it to, an onion right where it's kind of got that that outer layer and and it, sometimes it might be slightly slightly more difficult to kind of peel out that kind of outer layer but then once you're once you kind of inside you're inside right 
Um, and with regards to the sports world, it's one of those industries that doesn't necessarily have a linear process from a uh, an application standpoint, dependent on where you want to be within the sports world. So it's not like you go and do a qualification, you kind of train, you get qualified in the same way that you would as an accountant, as a lawyer, as a medic um, or anything else in, in professional services. So it's very much doing a couple of things. My my tactic was was twofold. The first was you kind of alluded to the IMG piece. I was like a lot of other people that wanted to work in sport, right? I had a huge passion for the industry, but there are so many people like that that I wasn't going to do anything that was going to help me to get into the industry apart from knowing knowing the things that I needed to know. So what I made sure I did was I tailored my work experience whilst I was at university to the sports industry so at least that way I could showcase on my CV that not only did I have a huge passion for the industry but I was actually starting to align my my work to to sport right and starting to show that I had started to make a break um I started to learn more about the inner workings of the industry and again that was challenging because IMG as, as you said they were one of the few companies at the time that would actually offer a formal internship right if you're a university and you want to do a summer VAT scheme in a law firm or you want to go and do a um a a grad scheme or you want to do some work experience or an internship at an investment bank or an accountancy firm there's very formalized processes for those things in sport they don't really exist i think that might have changed now in certain places but at the time there was very few so i made sure i tailored my work experience um and on the topic of university I was fortunate enough to be president of the university football club. So I played football throughout my university life. I played in school and everything else. Um, so I started to build up this kind of profile and picture of someone that actually loved his sport, but also started to kind of work out where in the sports world he wanted to be. I was fortunate to do some work experience in Manchester United as well. Um, and then the other factor that's really important in sport is contact book and network, right? And contact book and network doesn't need to be the first person you know that comes to mind when you think of sport they talk about the six and seven degrees of separation right in sport it's kind of one or two so it's a case of like looking through your contact book and going who do I know both personally or professionally and at that time it was very much more personal than professional obviously that could then introduce me to someone else or that I could sit down and have a coffee with or have a chat with that would then enable me to potentially get some work experience that would then potentially then mean that it's easier to get a job at the end of it. And that's very much what I did. And I was fortunate enough to uh, meet the chairman of the football agency I ended up working for, uh, for a coffee uh, whilst I was still at uni. They offered me a week's worth of work experience in my final year of university in the Easter. And then off the back of that, I was offered a job for when I finished. Um, so yeah, so I think there's a, there's, there's that kind of alignment of, tailoring a cv and tailoring your work experience to sport and doing other things now writing blogs writing articles and start to showcase your kind of knowledge of the industry and your passion for it and then utilizing a contact book and network where you have one whether it's personal professional through university and and any other means events and so on that is super insightful i mean a lot of people could could say what they think they should do but you as a as somebody who actually went through it and can say the abc super clearly of of what the steps are, I think that for all our listeners, that's going to be super, super insightful. Uh, I, I have a question regarding the majority of your experience has been in the sports industry. Has there been anything in the industry that surprised you that you think is unique, particular to any other types of jobs that you could be doing? 
the agency industry is always full of surprises from a from a talent management standpoint for sure um i think when when fifa decided to deregulate the industry and as i said they kind of the I was I was very fortunate. I worked for one of the largest sports say, football agencies in this country and in Europe. Um, so market saturation wasn't necessarily that much of an issue. Um, but once that world opened up and the deregulation came in, there was a whole number of things that happened within that world that I wasn't comfortable with, um, and it didn't align to a, a kind of a career progression that I kind of had planned for myself. Right, so probably every every boy who loves football's dream job to basically go and watch football for a living right and um whilst that at times can be great it's also not always as it seems right so when you're doing thousands of miles in the car and you're going to four or five football games a day and you're in the freezing cold at a league one football ground in in minus five degree temperatures on a tuesday night right doesn't always necessarily align to the picture you had in your head um but what I'd also say, one of the things that I suppose surprised me from a career standpoint was that I had come from a very traditional kind of academic background, studied history at university, um, and was essentially considering a career in law or career in sport. And as I touched on earlier, there's very linear career paths within some of the professional services industries. Like you start your job, you get training, you go from newly qualified to junior to associate to senior associate to partner and so on and so forth the sports world isn't like that right um so the sports world has this kind of non-linear career path and it's very much a fast-moving industry where trends are constantly changing i mean the trends that you're seeing now and a lot of the work we do now are aligned to kind of the startup world and the sports technology industry those things weren't even in question 10 years ago when I first started. So you're starting to see certain things happen. Um, but the sports industry is so fast moving, the integration of technology and and a whole host of other things within the industry has just meant that the, the football world evolves, right? And the sports world in general evolves. And what I'd say is that it doesn't always keep pace with the advancement in things like technology. So even though it's huge business, often these sports entities aren't as big as you think from a numbers perspective in terms of employees um they're not often as quick in my opinion as they should be to open themselves up to new opportunity and innovation um so even though they generate significant amounts of revenue there are definitely parts of the sports industry that are still stuck in the past uh, that you wouldn't necessarily see objectively unless you work in it yeah i mean i, I, was, I was actually reading the kind of profile that you had displayed on your new company, Barn Door. Um, and, you know, technology was a massive part of that as well. And, you know, it's interesting that you mentioned that kind of the sporting world may not be kind of as quick at kind of adapting these kind of things as, as you would have liked. Um, would you mind just kind of like explaining like what the, what your company does, your company that you're currently at and how, how the technology is kind of ahead of the curve in that kind of respect? Sure, absolutely. So, suppose the easiest way to see see what I do currently is to split it into three very distinct pillars that are all interconnected. So the first is that I lead a sports team um, out of a national law firm called JMW. Um, so we're a very traditional full service law firm, 700 people, three offices across the country. And we do everything from the traditional private client side of work um, 
So whether that's buying people houses or helping them with wills, trust, estate planning or prenups and divorces or immigration, et cetera, all the way through to your for business services, right? So whether that's corporate work, commercial work, dispute resolution, intellectual property, and so on and so forth. Um, and then in keeping with our, obviously our sports practice. So we have a sports team of around 20 people who all operate across each of those service areas. And that means we act for talent on the private client side. And then obviously companies, agencies, clubs, governing bodies, and then more recently sports technology businesses, brands and investors on the for business side. And then the, the, the second pillar is, and as, as, as you rightly say, Henry, um, is our barn door platform. So what Bondor basically is and what it's grown to today is it's a platform whereby we have over 200 athletes across 27 different sports. So they're young, current, retired, they're male, female, and it's everything from Premier League footballers through to world heavyweight boxing champions to England Rugby Union Cricket World Cup winners, Olympians, Paralympians. And the premise basically is that we want to connect them to new business and active commercial opportunities with the idea that we're going to help the athletes prepare for their life beyond sport. So I use the term new business and active commercial opportunities loosely, very deliberately, but it's essentially one of the four types of deal structure. So the first is an investment into early stage businesses, and this is where the technology piece comes in. So within that, there's a very strict criteria around the types of business opportunities that we present to our athletes. So all of our opportunities sit in sectors that are going to resonate and be relevant for the talent. So hence, all of our startup investment opportunities that we present to them essentially through our network is within sports technology, health technology, fitness, wellness, new digital media, consumer and gaming, right? So all the types of businesses you would look at and go, I can see that resonating will be rele relevant for an athlete. There's a strict criteria around the stage of business. So they're startups, but they're generating revenue and they've raised money before and so on. Um, and then the others are basically brand ambassador work, IP equity work, which is essentially whereby you want to work with an athlete as a startup, but you can't afford to pay them. So how do you incentivize them? You will look at a deal relative to offering them equity within your business aligned to the image rights value of that athlete. But it's not a simple mathematical formulation of going, my business is valued at 10 million and the athlete's valued at 1 million, therefore here's 10% of the business. And then the final one is the strategic advisory roles, which is basically saying that beyond their brand profile and capital resource, athletes have two huge value adds. The first being um, a very powerful contact book and network, which if they're now to utilize properly can be very valuable for early stage businesses. And secondly, they've got industry expertise. So whilst they can't advise on the tech behind a product, they can advise on elements within those businesses relative to their career as a professional athlete. So what that what that platform has basically done, and what that and what the the bundle network gives us is we have obviously our athletes on one side, their athletes directly, their agents, their advisors, their investment managers, the startup opportunities we have on the other side in the sectors I talk about, and then this wider network in the middle of other angels, high net worth, venture capital firms, family offices, where we kind of share deal flow and so on. Now. What we're essentially operating at the intersection of is what, what we like to call a golden triangle, where you have athletes, you have high quality, high growth, early stage businesses and sectors that I speak about, and then you have other institutional investors. And what that is capitalizing on is that kind of, as you say, the emergence of sport, media, kind of technology um, aligned to athlete involvement, right? So this is hugely popular in the US. 
You see athletes running their own venture capital funds. You see athletes investing into startups. And it's starting to shift very slowly here. Um, but the emergence, we're very actively immersed within the sports tech ecosystem, right? So we see a ton of deal flow. And the emergence of multiple different businesses, new technologies within within kind of sports technology alone. Again, going back to the point around the sports industry in general, like sports technology is so vast. It can be B2B, it can be wearable tech, it can be um, a whole host of things, artificial intelligence, VR, like there are so many different elements to within what's classed as sports tech. But what we've been fortunate enough to do is because the platform we run and our access to opportunity, it's meant we've been very actively involved in that ecosystem and seeing how technology is shaping the way that sport is going to run in the future. I mean, like brokering these kind of relationships between these startups and athletes. I know it's interesting because I was reading a piece the other day about, you know, Fulham having an, like Fulham FC having an absolute nightmare with some of their sponsors because they were cryptos and they didn't necessarily vet them properly. You know, is that a concern that you guys sometimes have in your business? Yeah, so you're absolutely right. There's there's um, there's a absolute need and a requirement for kind of strict due diligence. Um, what what's interesting about what we do is the essentially the ROI model behind the return on investment model behind Bondor is aligned to us as a law firm. So essentially, as a law firm, you're very strictly regulated in what you can and can't do. So we don't manage funds, we don't give investment advice or financial advice, and we're not giving the athletes their own investment advice or the other investors. So we do a absolutely a level of due diligence that is required to align the opportunities that we present to our network. But any decision that they then take to whether it's invest or do a commercial deal, they absolutely are advised. And um, we we stipulate that they must take their own advice, right? So we we essentially act as a network of opportunity. But you're absolutely right. We see within sports tech alone, we see north of 250 deals a year, right? We probably only end up working with a a, a handful, well, a, a few handfuls, right? So um, and that's because they either don't align to the the the, the kind of the sports people that we have or our other network, or they um, are too early, so they're too early stage. Uh, but you. But when it comes to a big sponsorship deal, as an example, and it's as brokering a deal between a football club and a brand, and we're representing either depends on obviously which side we're representing, there is absolutely a, a critical need for due diligence. And as a law firm, you obviously do your own KYC and AML checks when you take on a new client anyway. Um, but as you say, in spaces like crypto and Web3 and other places or gambling and so on, you do see uh, businesses that can on the face of it look like they're very successful and then six months later they they no longer exist right so you have to be careful uh, i think rights holders in particular so football clubs and um other sports entities have a real kind of requirement now to do more due diligence than they ever have when it comes to their new partners it's not just about chasing the the, the kind of the the revenue right um because fans are more invested in their clubs than they and than they ever have been and so they are they have kind of political moral social ethical views that is going to align to everything that football club or sports entity does and if they don't agree with those sponsors then they're going to let their feelings be known as you've seen over the course of the last 18 months yeah was it i think tom brady who got sued for the ftx debacle or something like that as well he, he was involved with ftx he was an investor and he was he was endorsed 
Uh, so FTX paid him a lot of money to to endorse FTX. So yeah, you're absolutely right. Like it's not just sports clubs. Athletes have a real responsibility as well to do due diligence on their 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 brand partners, right? So even though even if they get offered a hell of a lot of money, whether it's directly in cash or in equity and shares and so on, it's absolutely imperative that they that they do their own due diligence. And it doesn't mean to say every startup that they partner with is going to succeed, right? But as long as they're doing it for the right reasons and there's purpose and it's impactful and um the nature of startups is they're obviously high risk high reward so it doesn't mean that everyone needs to succeed but it's about making sure that there's downside protection on as much as you can get with regards to those partners for sure looking at it the other way how much do you think an athlete maybe it's very hard to quantify this how much does he bring does a startup have a higher probability of success by linking with an athlete with a team etc etc I think it's very much dependent on what the business does, uh, what the brand does, uh, what space they're operating in, um, the stage of the business. Um, so I think what athletes bring is they bring significant kind of trust, credibility, brand awareness to products in a specific space. So if it's within sport, health, wellness, consumer, you've seen for a very, very long time, and not just athletes, right? Film stars, musicians, celebrities, influencers. We've obviously seen how big the influencer world is now with obviously platforms like Instagram and TikTok and so on. So it's not just it's talent in general, right? Talent across any kind of media, sport media and entertainment vertical. They can be hugely valuable. They obviously have very, very wide reach. Um, and often that reach is is authentic, right? So it's about having an authentic audience that is also actually engaged. So one of the benefits that athletes bring that a another partner may not bring is that they've actually got an engaged audience. You might find that an influencer has 10 million followers on social media, but nine and a half million, those are fake, right? Um, when it comes to athletes, it's not to say that they don't have kind of fake followers on social media, but the, the, the people that do follow them that are real are, are doing it for a specific reason because they're engaged and they're loyal and they have a vested interest in those athletes, both personally, professionally, whatever it might be, right? They look up to them as heroes. Uh, they live their life in a specific way. Um, so I think it has to, there's a few prerequisites if a brand is to partner with an athlete and, and it make it look real and work. I think it has to be authentic. I think it's brilliant if an athlete has already been using that, it's, it, let's say it's a product, has been using that product or brand prior. Um, so they've got a vested interest in it. Um, and people can re read right through kind of lack of authenticity now. So obviously with regards to new rules around advertising regs and having to put paid by or sponsored ad and things like that, it's very obvious when someone's getting paid now, right? So I think there's there needs to be a real credibility behind it. And if you're a brand, it's not to say that you partner with an athlete and then the next day you see a sudden increase in sales and you um, your revenue suddenly triples overnight because an athlete's posted a product endorsement on their Instagram. But what it does is it starts to build brand loyalty, as I said, trust, credibility, authenticity, increased traffic and a whole lot of other things. So in, in short, for the right business in the right space at the right stage, it's one of the most powerful things you can do, but it's not always right. Yeah, I, I think I'll just get in one one question and then we'll kind of wrap up. But it was it was interesting actually. You mentioning the whole hero dynamic of sportsmen and women as well. Um, it's it's interesting actually because I mean, there's there kind of is a perception that they're all heroes in the in the eyes of the public. But I, I guess once you kind of get behind the veil, 
you know, there is a kind of reputation of sports people being particularly kind of abrasive or maybe quite tricky to work with as well. I mean, uh, kind of trying to manage these power relations between, you know, this kind of small startup and this big, big athlete must be quite like a cumbersome uh, thing to go about doing. Uh, I just wondered whether you had any kind of difficult uh, experiences with athletes and um, for some added content and feel free to name them <laughs> yeah yeah well i won't be able to do the latter that's for sure but um listen every athlete's their own their own user case and business case right so i think when you it, it's funny because people often approach us and go hey i'd love to work with athletes or um like how can we do it and people think and this goes back to our earlier point that it's uniform right you develop an, a relationship let's say with an agency and you suddenly get access to all of their athletes like each individual athlete is their own business case. And what I mean by that is there are some athletes that won't get out of bed in the morning without calling their agent, asking them if they're able to do so. And there are other, other athletes that literally manage everything for themselves and will only use their advisors for specific contract work, right? Um, some of them, as you say, can be difficult to work with. They can be challenging. They can um, be, be, be complex in all sorts of different ways, right? Um, I think the thing with athletes and the, the nuance you get with athletes that you don't necessarily get in other spaces as much is it's all about timing. So you could have them being your best friend one day and then they suddenly lose at the weekend and then they've got another game on the Wednesday and they lose and then you, you're not got in touch with them for a specific amount of time when you're working on a deal, right? So they can blow very <laughs> cold dependent on what's what's aligned to their like personal or professional life. Um but in general, one of the things I found, and one of the beauties about working with athletes is they have this kind of very tough, shell, like outer, outer shell um, and quite difficult to break down. But as soon as you get them engaged, often, and I'm not saying this is the case with all of them because it's absolutely not, but with a lot of them, as soon as they're engaged in something, they are super interested, they are super invested, um, and they're actually a lot more intelligent and passionate about things than people realize um but it's just kind of breaking down that barrier to get to that point uh which is one of the biggest challenges so yeah e each one comes with their own specific user case and <laughs> it's it, every everyone is treated differently even on specific days of the week yeah well i think we overran a little bit but nobody's going to be complaining because everything was just brilliant very insightful ben thank you again thank you very much for being here with us pleasure. yeah thanks so much ben yeah that was great actually i really enjoyed that pleasure nice to chat to you guys